gives people the ability to exercise free will. I can eat whatever I want. I'm just not eating as much as I used to because I don't feel like it. And that's what happened with me. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Got music set up here. Big screen TV set up on my wall. Gordon Ramsay showing me how to cook above the stove. Notes right here for some groceries. That's the sound of a man really enjoying his new Apple Vision Pro virtual headset. Can walk around freely. Here's what it looks like when it's on. And as we walk around the house, everything stays pinned. Exactly. Well, I think the first thing people should know is just love, love, love consumer gadgets. This week on Sand Hill Road, the investor in charge of consumer tech at TPB, Bharat Vasan. It's Bharat. It's like two presidents ago, but with the T at the end. Perfect. It got a lot easier after, uh, before that it was Borat, because that, that, that movie really made that famous. And so I was really glad when somebody else got elected and be like, it's just like that guy, but with the T at the end. And people are like, great, we know how to do that. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, so I want to start with uh, you're enjoying your Apple Vision Pro. Yes. What do you want to know about it? I want to know what you think of it. What, you, what do you do with it? All right. So I will buy every new thing that comes on the market. I might return it, but I will try it. And what I loved about uh, the Vision Pro was you you love it when a product surprises you unexpectedly because, you know, the reviews are out there. You've read about it. And a big part of, I think, consumer technology products is do you get that emotional feeling of this is cool and I want this in my life? And I bought all sorts of random stuff in my life, like either off Amazon or I have these Deviolet speakers, you know, where I didn't expect to keep them. They were expensive and I didn't want to keep them. But then they arrived and they were they had that 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 beauty about them and like they had that quality about them. You're like, you know what? I want that in my life. They communicated something. What I loved about the Apple Vision Pro, and I was not expecting to be surprised by, is not so much that I could have a million screens at, at the time, but how it allowed me to focus on the thing in front of me and drown everything else out. So whether it's watching a movie or writing code or writing an article. You know, I could imagine myself being in a chaotic environment, whether that's at work at a desk or at the airport or someplace else, and see a future where, like, you know, I'd be able to have my little bubble of calm and peace. And all of the stuff you're already familiar with phones and laptops and being able to move things around, you had some of those that familiarity mm-hmm. with the product. 
So, it's, you know, I think hopefully prices come down over time and more applications show up. But like when the first iPhone came out, there was no app store, didn't have a whole lot of apps. Uh, isn't that incredible? And this yeah, was just like no that experience of like, right. okay, these guys, have, you know, there's something here. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's something here for some segment of the audience that, you know, is going to be irrationally excited about it and tell people. Someone wrote, if it, it looks like a joke until it isn't, create unique apps for the app store on this. Be the first. Yeah. There's something out there that we haven't thought of. Yeah. I mean, because we didn't think of Uber and DoorDash and Tinder when we first held an iPhone. Right. But there's something this thing will do that everyone will say, well, that's why you haven't. Yeah, no one's sure if that's work or it's consumer or like what, you know, exactly what it is. Like you can watch movies on a, you know, on a, a meta headset, right? And... Uh, but the resolution of this thing, I, I will say, my wife looked at me as like, I'm not touching that thing because she was like, you, you look like a dork. Uh, and I, she, she knew that already. And, I, though, and, and that's she? the sentiment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> married into it. But on Twitter, I can see like, you know, the polarization around like the people who are not experiencing the same thing. Yeah. From the outside looking exactly. in. Exactly. It's Literally. like being, you know, complain about people being on your phone. But when people are on their phones, they're totally immersed in this tiny little screen. And I think just the thought that now you're completely immersed in it with a headset on your face to boot is just too much for the public to handle. I often talk to investors, you know, who are doing SaaS or they're doing B2B or they're doing, you do a lot of consumer electronics. I love consumer. Yeah, as a person, you like it. Yeah. And then you're an investor in it as well. It does seem like if the, the most fun VC is the one who gets to, you know, invest in the in the stuff, the gadgets. I mean, that's not what the life science, you know, look, TPB invests in life oh, sciences, no, totally. healthcare. Yes. No, I know. And there's lives to be saved. Lives and, to be saved, yes. all that stuff. Um, I grew up as I grew up in India as a child of American pop, pop culture. In fact, that's how I learned English. Like, I didn't learn it at schools. I watched it by watching Knight Rider and David Hasselhoff and, like, A-Team and, like, shows that don't exist anymore. Comics like Archie and, like, you know, Disney thing. That's literally how I learned English. And I think one of the things about all those, Star Trek was big. Yeah, There was this sense of transporting you into the future. And if you look at many of those things from Star Trek, like a lot of them exist today. You have big screens. You don't have buttons anymore. You have big screens. You know, you can travel to space. You can have things that take off and land. And I really think that imagination of like stuff that exists in the future, if you can get, just get a smallest glimpse of it today, from science fiction. I think what I love about consumer technology is when those things become real. One of the, speaking of Star Trek, one of the things you've been involved in is something called Canna. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 it's a printer of sorts that prints liquid that you drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, explain, explain, give me the elevator pitch on this one. So a high concept around Canna was if you had a spaceship, and everyone's seen the Star Trek movies. Tea like, you wouldn't have, hot, like, yeah. you know, cans of Pepsi and, like, you know, sheep and cows in the hole like that. But you're not going to make it to Mars in doing that. And so the question is, can you synthesize food and liquids and all the other stuff you need for nutrition and, you know, pleasure and happiness, like, in your daily diet on the fly? Harder to do with food. All the cultured meat and other stuff is coming around. But much easier to do on beverages because most beverages are 98% water and just 2% whatever it makes it that beverage. And so Canada was the promise of can you use advances in mass spectrography, which has gotten a lot cheaper, um, in chemical analysis to try and break down wines, coffees, teas, beers, all the stuff that we consume and figure out what the 2% is. 
and whether the two percent is a lot of overlap, kind of like you know genes over you know overlap across you know human beings, animals, and others is ninety percent the same, and it's only like you know ten percent that makes one beverage a completely different beverage. And what Canna found was that that's true. White wine and red wine are not as dissimilar as you might think, and coffee and red wine are not as dissimilar as you might think. And so once you map all of those things, just like you know mapping the genome, you start to figure out how you can take those compounds in minute quantities and recreate any beverage from scratch because the other 98% is basically water. And it reminded me of like this is a good example of something from the future. It's like the Star Trek replicator, right? Like if you had a spaceship, you wouldn't have cans of Diet Coke out there. You'd figure out how to make water on the fly and then right. you'd find the 2% of the Diet Coke thing, that, which is the thing you'd store in your hold. Right. And it would print it out in your room with the replicator. You mentioned, um, you know, artificial or lab-grown meat and this idea of this replicator that does uh, liquids. There could be a seismic change in the food industry ahead. Uh, and not just that, but also semi-glutides, which you know something about. Tell me, tell me your interest in that. I ask because Barat is one-fifth the person he used to be, having lost about 20% of his body weight with Ozempic. I've tracked my weight over time. I have this Wi-Fi scale, and I, for no reason you've been standing on it, it's been collecting data points over time. You can see all these peaks and valleys where I've gone through these stressful periods in my life, whether it's work-related, personal, whatever. Does you see these huge peaks? Um, I decided to try, and, and every time it's gone down, it's because I did all the right things. You should eat right, you should work out, you should sleep. Like, you know, the, all the shoulds is kind of how Americans have been coached. And what I realized from taking it was, it makes the cravings go away and it preserves the, not the illusion, but it gives, uh, it gives people the ability to exercise free will. I can eat whatever I want. I'm just not eating as much as I used to because I don't feel like it. It's different for different people. Check with your doctor, all the disclaimers. But for me, it worked. It worked with relatively few side effects. And there is no way I could have lost 40 pounds in the space of four or five months with everything that was going on in my life using the you should method of like, I should do all these things. Well, and people, people you wrote accuse you of cheating. I, I, so I think there's a little bit around semaglutides where my theory is it's this thing from the future that existed for a while. It, what was interesting to me also is when you go through Google Trends, this, you, normally you see these tech things and they're like a coastal phenomenon. It's like, you know, you see LA, San Francisco, sure. New York, and it's like a very coastal thing. And if you go to Google Trends and just Google Ozempic, it's very, very broad-based. Oh, it's everywhere. Because yeah. the problem is broad-based. Yeah. But it has a little bit of, because the cultural nuance is like, you know, you should be doing these things. Yes. And yet we don't do these things in our everyday. We know what we should be doing. But life doesn't work that way. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. My life is full of you should be doing things. Um. It gave people the ability to control a very, very important part of their life, uh, but feel that sense of free will that I think is important to Americans, you know, but help regulate it. I'm really interested in how uh, it, it feels like cheating to people on the outside because they're doing the we should plan. I'm not saying it's for everyone, but it has a little bit of a feel of like, you know, plastic surgery or Botox, like any of the stuff that people do en masse right now, but it's just not talked about it as much. I feel like statins were there a while ago, you know, and now they're pretty common in the U.S. And my guess is these GLP-1 drugs, people will be on and off them. I know that's maybe a controversial point of view, but I feel like people will be on and off of them, not just for weight loss, but I think 
just the downstream health benefits and all the other comorbidities, cardiac disease that come down as a result of people not being obese is going to be a huge boon for the healthcare system that maybe we're not forecasting right now. The healthcare system, and you also wrote, my prediction, the Ozempic tidal wave will overhaul the U.S. food system within five years. In what ways? Um, I told you a little bit about my experience, right? Eating half as much and then off the half I eat, it's changing what I have to consume. The stuff right. that I eat. So one of the things I loved about when I came to America, and it always strikes people who come from abroad, is like you walk into like your Safeway or your supermarket, and there's aisles full of variety. You have never seen that many varieties of chips in other con- you know, in countries. Like you haven't seen this many flavors of pizza. There's a whole aisle just for cereal. It's incredible. And over time, each of those aisles is sort of fragmented into there's a keto-specific one and like, you know, there's dairy-free milk. Like even the milk section is, is very fun. People don't realize that until you come to this country, you know, like, wow, this is an incredible amount of variety. And, but, and that plays out in restaurants as well, extra large portions. Like mm-hmm. Europeans will talk about this. You go to an olive garden, it's like all you can eat pasta and some Italians sitting there going, why, why would you want that much pasta? <laughs> Does not make any sense? <laughs> But that's, that, you know, that's just the way. And it's, it's part of what's gotten us into this obesity trap because the food is so great. It's designed to be cheap versus nutritious. And I think it hasn't had a good counterbalance. You know, um, there was no easy way to follow the you should plan and lose a lot of weight and look good and like, you know, have the health benefits, you know, for your family or for yourself. And I think what GLP-1 set up is this battle of big pharma versus big food. Two very, very, very competent actors, two very, very large sectors, but they're animated by the fact that consumers will start gravitating towards this thing because weight management is not unimportant to people. It was just unattainable. Mm -hmm. And once it becomes attainable and they're just eating less, what I think changes about the food business is uh, smaller portions, higher nutrition, more functional foods. Pricing might not change. They might charge differently for it. But it just means that there's no more space for another cliff bar. You're going to need a product like, you know, I'm an investor in a company called Supergut that, you know, is doing really well because people on GLP-1s are people who don't want to be on GLP-1s but want foods that stimulate GLP-1 production and lower their A1C levels, their blood sugar levels, uh, want a food that can do that as opposed to a medication that can do that. And so I think you're going to see the social proof from people on GLP-1s and more people are going to come in. There's maybe 15 million Americans on it now. I think maybe that number goes to 100 million over the next five years. That's a huge you know, swing. And that's going to affect all of the food and diet habits around this, which is why retailers like Walmart talk about it and Pepsi talks about it on their earnings call because you don't know if it's, it's maybe not hurting your business right now, but you are seeing that people are shifting purchasing behaviors in each of those aisles. Walmart has a particularly good insight into it because Walmart has pharmacies. Correct. And they, you know, it's anonymized. That's but right. They, can, they right. can see the trend. Right. And anyone can see that it's, it was 8% of, uh, the U.S. consumes a lot of pharma. I think that's fair to say relative to most of sure. the world. And if you think of the volume of what the U.S. does on the pharma side, and think about the fact that right now, GLP-1 drugs are 8 to 10% of all scripts being written at pharmacy, it is an incredible number, like just a staggering number. And the, you know, number of lives that's changed, but also the the positive experience people, many people are having with it. I'm not saying it's for everyone, but 
most people, many people seem to have results with it. And the question is, is this part of how the future is going to be, just like statins were? Like this is something people try on and off again? Is it something that's a permanent part of people? Does it lead to lasting behavioral change? So I'm off of it now, have been for four months or three months, and I'm more conscious about what I eat. I eat one meal a day still because that habit stuck, and before it would have been very hard for me to do that. That habit stuck. And so a few things have stuck, and the question is, does that behavior change now lead to long-term trends that bleed into it? Because, you know, you have this big pharma not versus big food, but it's going to have an impact right. on big food. Well, and some of the Ozempic users have reported that their taste for alcohol gets less or yeah. their taste for cigarettes mm-hmm. gets less. Uh, it changes some kind of craving behavior, yeah. and that could be enormous. Enormous. You know, I, I think alcohol is a category. The two other categories are greasy food because you digest faster, so you just you know, you'd, sure. you, you're going to eat many fewer potato chips than you would be before. And the question is, should that packaging change and should it be a much smaller package? Because in the U.S., package sizes went up and you get like bigger and bigger things at Costco, not less smaller and smaller things. And I think the other thing is sugar. People have talked about, you know, the inflammatory qualities of sugar and we are a country and sugar is delicious and addictive and, you know, we love sugar in all, all its forms. And so the other thing that happens over time is just lower sugar consumption. You can eat, for me, I'm not saying this happens with everyone, but certainly for me, it's lower sugar consumption. And just being able to do that has like a long stream of, you know, downstream effects because sugar is in alcohol, sugar is in your cereal, in your bars, and pretty much in every single thing you can go through. Same thing for restaurants. We talk about aisles, but also like do portion sizes decrease? And there's something that people have been trying to do for a long time unsuccessfully. But maybe people just start walking to restaurants and being like, listen, you know, I want half the thing because the food is being wasted. Like, give me an option where, you know, even if it's not priced differently, I'm not leaving half the food on the table because it seems wasteful. And that kind of behavior change could be great for restaurants as well because things start to get more affordable because people can afford to eat out because they're just not eating as much. And but, you know, portion sizes will might be permanently changed in the U.S. for all sorts of things. My girlfriend and I, have, with a strategy of, you know, they give you so much food that we have said, let's order one thing. And then not to save money or to split it necessarily, let's order one thing. And if we're still hungry, they don't mind bringing us more food. It's a restaurant. <laughs> It's hard to stick to sometimes. And imagine that happening in kitchens, you know, in restaurants across America, right? Like that is a huge change. And because I do consumer, I'm looking for these things that are durable, that are not like, you know. Yeah. How does it change your investment strategies or your thoughts on investments? Uh, Well, I think a lot of people have already invested in the first thing you could invest in, which is, you know, Nova Nordisk and Eli Lilly are public companies and their stock prices have gone enormously. Yeah. And that, you know, who would have thought that three years ago, uh, that this random drug that's not, you know, about cancer or some really big thing, it's really going to be about this weight loss category is going to be, and there's two of them. It's not just like one stock. There's two of them. And you have the oral forms of it, all these other forms that are still due to come out. I think there's opportunities in food because I think the food landscape at restaurants and in aisles will get completely remade. And just like you have keto-specific, you know, um, cereals and bars and shakes, like, you know, Supergut is doing this, but I think other businesses will start to do that as well. Uh, I think there's opportunities for, on the lead generation side, like Roe and Hims and Tours, the Teladoc side of things. And lastly, I think there's an opportunity at the clinic level because 
for some percentage of people, this is not going to work. <clears throat> and often one reason it doesn't work is because they're also in other medications. And so if, you know, the teledoc thing is a little bit more, you're going to talk to a doctor you've never met before, they're going to do blood tests, and then they're going to get the prescription, and life is going to be great. But for a lot of people, it might be, hey, I'm on this other medication, I have these other health issues, how do I deconflict these things? Because I still want the life-saving benefit of this mm-hmm. drug, and I also want the life-saving benefit of this drug. And so primary clinics might, and hospital systems might have a role to play here where doctors are helping that group of patients, and this becomes something where chronic care for cardiac disease and a bunch of other stuff that is obesity-related starts to come down over time because we're able to treat these things earlier, but also deconflict any other medications you're on so you can make that journey safely. I think those are like the four categories of investment that I look at as, you know, 100, 200 million people come into this. That's just the U.S. There's still, Europe has barely heard about this, even though Novo is a European company. There are places like India and China and the Middle East where this is, you know, like obesity is a big problem as their middle classes grow. And it's all processed food. You know, they're kind of following in the footsteps we came in cheap, fast, but not necessarily nutritious is the the trend everywhere. And so this might be something that changes outcomes around the world. I think with consumer, building consumer companies in general, you need something about the market to change. And what I like about this phase of the market is I still think there's just like, you know, Vision Pro is an exception, but there's plenty of technologies in the market that no one pays attention to. It's like semaglutides have been around for a long time. Right. And no one paid attention to them. And then, you know, Novo productized it with Ozempic and then they marketed. Like, And I think what's changed right now for Supergut and lots of other food companies is people have these very specific dietary needs. Their doctors and pharma and other places are doing a really good job of training them on what their dietary needs are, more protein. There is a lot more social proof out there. So word of mouth, people telling people like me, telling other people about what their experience has been and other people trying it. And some of that bleeds into food. And what you will find in the food aisles, if you go to like Supergut's almost the only clinically proven. And I I don't think that, I think that was a necessary but not sufficient to your question about Mm -hmm. traction. Mm -hmm. But the fact that there's tens of millions of GLP-1 users walking into aisles that, you know, Sprouts and Bristol Farms and all the way to Erewhon and going like, you know, what's compatible with the thing I'm on? There isn't a product on shelves. And you would think the larger food companies would react quicker, but you'd be surprised at how wedded people are to whatever their brand strategy was when they started. Yeah, you're right. Uh, something, a cereal or something with a label in which they've partnered with those. That's right. And somehow. you underestimate how big that market segment. And I think Liquidet is a good example of, there's been plenty of water company. It's yeah. literally just water. <laughs> it makes no sense. But their core insight is like, hey, listen, a lot of people in a new generation just, you know, they don't want to look, uh, they don't want to look bad at a party not holding something right. alcoholic. And so we need something cool. And it doesn't matter what it contains, but it needs to not look like a glass of water. And I don't know if that insight is kind of where they started with, but that applied to a generation of people and another generation of people you couldn't imagine that being relevant for. And as I, so I do think right now you're in this middle of this huge shift that's being driven by pharma that's going to have food-related consequences, and those people already have needs. Underestimating those needs or not reading them early enough is, is kind of where startups get to build a brand and cut through the noise. You mentioned that you grew up in India, but on American pop culture. Uh, you, you mentioned Knight Rider and A-Team and, and whatnot. Was there a particular thing that when you got to America, 
you thought, oh, this is not like the A-team. Or right. this, yeah. I know, we, I'll give you an example, and, and that is anytime that uh, somebody comes out to California, uh, to Northern California, having grown up on Southern California video. Yeah. You know, uh, the the highways and the traffic and the, and and you take them between, on 280 between San Jose and San Francisco, they're just agape. Right. You know, this is not at all what I thought this was going to look like. Look, there were lots of, you know, like environmental changes for me. I, you know, when I, I, I went from India, hot southern India, to a school in Vermont. <laughs> Never seen snow before. The cows were like twice the size, about 10 times the size. I mean, it was a whole new world. Like everyone had like a car, like, you know, you know, most families in America, like, you know, maybe had one car with every five families you knew type of thing when I was growing up. So it's just a very different type of thing. But like, I've always been an American optimist because you never lose the wonder. And like, I don't know how to explain to people when you first come here, it just seems so big. And it seems like a place where you can do anything and achieve anything. And there are plenty of those American type stories. And you see, you know, I think it's a little bit more common around the world because China and India and others have their own entrepreneur class. But when I was growing up, that was less common. Like, you know, you got a job, you became a doctor or a software engineer. Like there was a thing that you were, like, that was the thing you were meant to be doing. And I think I've never lost faith in the fact that the top end speed of, you know, the United States has always been higher. Like we have rockets that land themselves, even though the Europeans have a space industry and the U.S. has had one. Someone decided they're going to build a company where the rocket takes off and lands itself because they were like, well, it doesn't make sense to waste the bottom part. We should just make it land itself. And, and then other people, you know, help them build it. And I think that that's, that's the promise of what I love about not just the U.S., but, you know, just, you know, Silicon Valley in particular. Bharat Vasan, the investor operator at TPB, the production board. Next week, Howard Bornstein's Rule of 30. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com.